you're taking your seats, you can open to the passage our friend Kyle just read. We're coming to the end of our study through the gospel according to Mark. It's been almost 14 months, I want to say, of a journey through the gospel according to Mark, and we're getting to the very end here. This, of course, is the thing that changes everything, the resurrection, right? It is the thing in the main dish, that key ingredient that if it wasn't there, would completely change what it was. It wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be tasty. Everything in Mark's gospel hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus did not raise from the grave, if he was not raised on the third day, I would not be doing what I'm doing. I would probably be in medical school, getting close to finishing up a doctorate program to be a brain surgeon. I would be making a lot of money, and I would be not doing what I'm doing. The disciples would be mending their nets, going back to the the normal way of living before Jesus had called them, going back to what they thought life was all about. But that didn't happen. The church exploded. They were sent out as missionaries to be testimonies of this truth. Without the resurrection, we sing songs to a pastor, passive Middle Eastern man who taught some weird things, obtained some sort of following, and then died. Without the resurrection, we now as Christians observe his teaching to be, quote, good people and be at peace with our neighbors. Without the resurrection, there is no transformative power to the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have been a teacher who ended up telling some lies. His power, his word, didn't really, weren't that powerful. He just would have been a a guy that presented maybe a, a good way to live as a moral person. Mark has been telling us that the story about Jesus is teaching his life, his power, his word, Everything hangs on, did this really happen? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the text. We're going to look at Mark 15, 42 through 6, 8. We're going to try to get ourselves into the text, see what Mark meant, see what it meant to the original audience, look at some principles based on the text, and then try to get the text into us. What does it mean? What are some applications of the resurrection? What does it really mean? I think one of the first principles that we see in the passage that Mark wants us to see is that Jesus really died. Jesus was a real person who really died. The life and death of Jesus was a, fact, a factual historical event. He has many eyewitnesses, and Mark includes there all the, the eyewitnesses, the women, Pilate, the centurion, to, get, to cue us into this reality. Jesus really lived, and he really died. Mark records in verse 42 that on the day of preparation, this would have been the day before the Sabbath, they needed to take Jesus' body off the cross and give him a proper burial before the Sabbath began at sundown, before they they couldn't take him off of the cross. And a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, took courage and went to Pilate to ask for his body. Now Matthew records that that Joseph was a disciple. That's what Matthew tells us. Mark says he was a man who was looking for the kingdom. Elsewhere in the other gospels, we know that Joseph of Arimathea was, he was a respected member, meaning he was an influential member of the council. He would have been wealthy, prominent. He probably knew Jesus and wanted to honor him. And Mark records that he took courage. And a guy named Jay Brooks says the, the statement, take courage or went boldly, should not be taken lightly because there was a great risk and associated oneself with a person who had been executed for treason. Probably Mark wanted, Mark intended Joseph to be an example to his readers, hearers, to act boldly on behalf of Jesus. So Joseph comes up, he takes courage, he asks Pilate for the body. And it says in verse 44 that Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. Now, normally crucifixions took two to three days. That's how long and drawn out the process was of crucifixion. So you could could see why Pilate would have been surprised. He died that day. 
He wants to make sure that Jesus died, so he summons the centurion and asks him whether he was already dead. Again, another indication, Jesus really died. The same centurion who was standing on the cross watched Jesus die. This centurion told Pilate that Jesus, in fact, was dead. And when Pilate learns that he had died, he grants him the corpse. Mark uses a very specific word there. Corpse. Meaning, Jesus was dead, right? Wasn't his body that he was in a deep sleep that he could have woken up from later and it was all this kind of this magical show. Jesus really died. This request that was kind of uh, unique for Joseph of Arimathea because oftentimes it was, this request would only have been granted to family members. Oftentimes the Romans wanted to keep the people who were uh, convicted or condemned to crucifixion on the cross where their body would sit there and rot while birds and animals would come pick at it. They wanted it to be a, a symbol, a sign. Do not mess with the Romans. So oftentimes they would just leave the body up on the cross. But Pilate granted this request to Joseph and some scholars believe that this may indicate that he believed Jesus was innocent, that he didn't really take the conviction of Jesus as being worthy of high treason very Seriously, it shows that Pilate could have condemned Jesus simply out of peer pressure. The fear that there might have been a political uprising from the chief priests or the scribes stirring up the crowd. It could have been because he didn't want to offend the Jews anymore by leaving the body up on the cross. And the Jews had a tradition, a custom that the body had to be buried within a day. They didn't want to offend the Jews. But again, Mark records a corpse. Jesus was not alive. He was dead. And it says, Joseph brings a, a linen shroud and takes him and wraps him in a shroud, lays him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is another indicator, reason that Joseph was a wealthy man. Because more, more often than not, uh, Jews were buried in like stone coffins. Uh, they were buried in, in shallow graves. It was kind of the wealthy, the prominent that had tombs that were made out of rock. And this more likely would have been Joseph's family's tomb because a lot of times it was the family that had a tomb that their immediate family or extended family would, would use for, for storing the dead, for keeping the dead. Kind of shows that, again, the, the cost, the generosity of Joseph. I don't know about you, but if you've seen the pictures of you know, the children's books or what did the tomb really look like, sometimes they show kind of like a round flat disc that would have been rolled in like a little channel over the tomb. That, that's possible. It could have also just been a very large rock that was just rolled up against the entrance of the tomb. And then Mark records a, a pretty important uh, detail here. It says, Mary Magdalene Mary saw where he was laid. Again, another eyewitness. Like when they come to the empty tomb, they didn't come to the wrong tomb. That's what Mark is trying to show. They weren't mistaken in which tomb they came to. Oh, their soul has rolled away. Jesus must have been raised from the dead. And in fact, they, they went to the wrong tomb. This is not what happened. They saw where he was laid. They saw the tomb in which Jesus was buried in. These women did not go to the wrong tomb on Easter morning. They did not make up the story that Jesus rose from the dead. Mark includes them again in 16.1. When Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, Salome, so they might go and anoint him. After the Sabbath had ended, when they could go out and they could buy spices and oils, they, they wanted to go anoint his body. And again, Mark references these women again and again and again throughout the past 20, 20 verses or so. And I said, why is Mark being so repetitious here? Why is he including these women again and again? And this is because this is, this is the way ancient uh, writers and, and Mark would use kind of like a, a footnote. This is the way historians would record accounts. They would drop the names of the eyewitnesses. Meaning, in other words, if, if you have any questions about this story, you have any questions about the facts that I am describing in this story, go talk to these women. They're still around. You can go talk to them. If anyone reading this gospel wants to check my information, go talk to these women. They're still alive. They'd be able to tell you what they saw. If you had questions, you could kind of cross-examine. Is Mark really telling the truth here? I love what Mark writes in verse 2. I, I 
underlined this this week and just was thinking about it this morning. It says, very early on the first day of the week, on Sunday, when the sun had risen. I think Mark is recording, you know, the sun actually, the sun rose, that glowing orb in the sky came up. So it's indicating this morning. But thinking about that, even this morning, I had to think about how many sunsets do I see and not even think about the resurrection? I mean, what a beautiful picture and, and illustration that God has given us in sunrises. It says, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had rolled back. It was very large. You think about it, try to put yourself in the, in, the, in the shoes of these women. They're going to the tomb, they have their spices, and the first thing, the first problem they kind of, seems like they're trying to process as they're getting there is, oh man, how are we going to roll the stone away? I hope there's some, some people there that are going to help us get this stone away, because that's going to present a problem for us. They get to the tomb, they look up and they see, the stone is rolled away, the, the tomb is empty. And I think Mark is showing us that it wasn't rolled back to allow the women to enter the tomb and anoint Jesus' body. It was rolled back because Jesus was no longer in there. Jesus was no longer buried in that tomb. Jesus really lived and died. But just as he really lived and he really died, he really rose again. I'm, I, I put my life on that. It was a, it's, this is a fact. This really happened. You can see, though, that the, the women were not really expecting this. Right? I mean, just imagine, you're going to anoint the body. You're thinking about, how am I going to roll this stone away? The stone's gone and Jesus is not in there. To say that they were alarmed, probably an understatement, right? Just think about it. If you, you know, you, let's say that my, my grandma, my grandparents have passed. I went to, to honor them by maybe bringing some flowers to the grave. And the grave is dug up and there's no body in the coffin. I mean, that would be, that would disturb me. I would not be expecting that. Right? I think there can kind of be a modern arrogance in us to think that, um, well, we know now, based on modern science, our brains are much more advanced. We have the technology. We know that a resurrection could never happen. Right? Have you ever talked with anyone about the resurrection and they might use an argument like this? Well, for this first century people, they had, an, they had an, uh, a worldview, an, an idea that this, you know, this kind of stuff happens, and they were a little more ignorant. They were more simple. They could, have, they could have kind of understood or fabricated or believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But, you know, 21st century, we're much more advanced. We have science. We know that wouldn't happen. But it's interesting to me that all the times that Jesus promises a resurrection, all the times he tells his disciples, hey guys, on the third day, I'm, I'm raising from the dead. You think that Mark would include, like, you think that one disciple would go and say, you know what? I remember Jesus, the third day. It, it's Sunday. This is the third day. Maybe I'm just going to check out the tomb. Maybe he rose from the dead. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? You think that one disciple would have that mentality, right? I mean, what... Turns out the stone's there, you know, but wouldn't hurt, right? Why don't I go check it out? That wasn't even, a, I don't think that was even a thought because for them, too, resurrection wasn't a possibility. The Greeks had no, they wouldn't believe in a resurrection. It was a stumbling block to them. The, the Jews believed that there was a, a future general resurrection, but individuals wouldn't resurrect, certainly not in the middle of time. Tim Keller says it like this. You say, how could they have believed it? It was impossible for their worldview, though it's different than yours. It was impossible for them because 
as it is for you to believe. But they believed it. Why? Because they let the evidence change and challenge their worldview. What I'm afraid of is a lot of modern people are doing is being intellectually lazy. They are saying, well, you know, our worldview doesn't make it possible to believe in the resurrection. No, it wasn't possible for them either. Then why did they believe it? Because they had the intellectual integrity to let the evidence challenge their worldview. Do you? Do you? You have to come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for this little group exploding and changing the world when no other group did. We cannot come to the text and say, well, I can't ever see how the resurrection would happen, therefore it surely didn't happen. We can't somehow think that we're smarter, more sophisticated, more advanced than, than these women in the early church that witnessed Jesus. Jesus really rose from the dead. And the angel there gives us a, a divine truth. I love how bluntly he says it. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who you crucified, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. I think, again, Mark is using this. Mark records Jesus of Nazareth. It was a phrase that was used at the beginning of Mark, but it's a phrase that I think implies Jesus was a real person. He was from a real place. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose again. That's what Mark is trying to get us to see. But then in verse 7, he says, Go, tell the disciples, tell Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were terrified. Now we'll get into a little more next week, but a lot of in your, in your translations, in your Bibles, it will have kind of in brackets. Uh, many early manuscripts don't include what happens after this. You see that in your Bibles? In the opinion of most New Testament scholars, verse 8 is where Mark ended his gospel. That's the end. And when you think about it, I thought, that's okay, if, if that's where Mark really ended, that's kind of an odd place to end, isn't it? I mean, I don't normally go about thinking, my favorite part, my favorite part about the resurrection is the fear, <laughs> right? I'm reminded of that, uh, that, that scene in the office where Jim and Pam are joking with Dwight about their favorite part, their favorite part about Christmas is the, the fear and the authority, right? Why would, why would Mark end with fear and astonishment, ending with trembling? Well, to Mark, this is not a, this is not a, a new concept. This is not something knew that he's presenting when it comes to Jesus. Mark writes that it is proper for people to witness the power of God in Jesus to be astonished. Bewilderment, fear, flight is not surprising as it comes. Mark records similar reactions when people observe the power of God. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 22, the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. In chapter 1, verse 27, because of the exorcism. In chapter 2, verse 12, because of the healing of the paralytic. In chapter 441, the disciples were terrified as a result of Jesus calming the storm. In Mark chapter 5, verse 15, the people were afraid because Jesus had expelled the legion of demons from a wild man. In chapter 5, verse 33, the woman who had been healed of the hemorrhage confessed with trembling and fear. In Mark chapter 5, verse 42, the disciples and the girl's parents were astonished at her resurrection. In chapter 6, verse 51, the disciples were completely amazed when Jesus was walking on the water. In Mark chapter 9, verse 13, the disciples were overwhelmed with wonder when they saw Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 32, they were astonished and afraid because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. In chapter 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes feared Jesus because the crowd was amazed at his teaching. And there's others. I think the principle, the point that Mark is trying to get us to see is that Jesus is amazing. And I say that knowing that we use this word a lot, don't we? Man, I made it home in, in 10 minutes today instead of 11. Oh, Daniel, that's amazing. Is it? Right? 
Oh, my daughter just walked. She's one. That's amazing. Is it? Don't kids normally walk around that time? I mean, I don't want to burst any... That's the reality, right? (laughs) Jesus' resurrection is amazing. The women were astonished. They were terrified. They were trembling. I believe that Mark left his ending open like this because he wanted to show that the story was not finished and that this is the response that we should have to the resurrection. Amazement. Wonder. Have you ever been so amazed at something that you're speechless? That you gawk? Right? No? Just me? You see a beautiful sunset. You see an amazing fireworks show. You see something glorious and spectacular. You're kind of dumbfounded. How often do we hear about the resurrection or do we read about a story like this and we're kind of like, oh yeah, resurrection, that happened. That was cool. It doesn't lead us to worship, to wonder at God. We know, of course, that the women, they composed themselves. They proceeded to tell the disciples what happened. Matthew and Luke record this. But even in this women's testimony is another reason that Jesus really died and rose again. Because in Jesus' time, the, the testimony of women were, it was kind of worthless, like it didn't count. The testimony of a woman was not even accepted in the court of the Jews. This means that the disciples in the early church and the church leadership never would have invented the story that was based on the testimony of women. They would not have wrote that the women were the only eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Jesus really lived. He really died. He really rose again. As we said before, Mark ends in verse 8, and Mark wanted to highlight the mystery, the wonder of his resurrection, this amazement. It reminds me of uh, my, my daughter Addison, who's 14 months, and she kind of flatters me and makes me feel good about myself a lot because I'll do something that's kind of really mundane or easy, like I'll lay on my back and I'll throw up a football and I'll just catch it. And she'll look at me and she'll go, Whoa! Something really simple that Steffi and I will do, and she'll just, she's just like amazed. Wow. <laughs> and I love the reminder that she gives me. Am I, am I amazed at my father? Do I have that wonder? Wow, God, you are awesome. There is no one like you. No one comes close to you. Because, to, I mean, when we experience something amazing, we want to keep coming back to it, right? We want to come to it again. And it's like the reason we have highlight reels and see it again on the Jumbotron and, and why, you know, we want to see the, uh, we capture YouTube videos that we want to watch again and again of something ridiculous or funny that, that happened. We want to relive it. When we hear about the resurrection, when we read about Jesus' life, that he defied death, that he's alive, that death couldn't hold him back. Are we apathetic? Are we moved by that? Because the life that he lived, the, the power of his word, the, the power of, this, of the resurrection, what he did, should amaze us. This should lead us to worship. I think one of the indicators that we don't understand the gospel is that we are certain that we do. One of the indicators that we don't understand the gospel is that it doesn't move us, motivate us, transform us. Because I know for me, and grew up kind of being accustomed to the Christian faith, grew up being a part of a church. This kind of it, it, I can get callous to it, can't we? We can lose our wonder for God. We can lose our wonder for Jesus for the resurrection. It can kind of become normal to us. 
This is not normal, right? I confess something that might be pretty silly in the moment, and thinking about it now probably was, but when I was at my grandma's funeral, I kept praying, God, raise her from the dead that you might show yourself to be who you are. I couldn't help but think, man, if she did that, wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, people would just, they would, they would do something. I mean, they, they probably would be speechless. Like, people pull out their f- videos and trying to capture this is going. This would be like a freaky moment. People would probably start running out and normal people don't come back to life when they die. And Jesus' resurrection has huge implications, which I want to get at uh, as, we, as we close. One of the things that I think is important, though, that we don't miss is, is in verse 7, how Mark highlights the graciousness of God, the grace of God in Christ. The angel says in verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you. Scholars think that that Jesus wanted to meet in Galilee to kind of distance himself from being maybe the political expected Messiah that they thought and distance himself from their false expectations of who he was, maybe give them a better understanding of who he really was. But everyone agrees that this, the words of the angel demonstrate the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. That even though the disciples rejected him, they abandoned him, they didn't believe in him, Jesus is still going before them. In other words, it's saying that he's still their leader. He still wants to lead them. What the angel doesn't say, which I think highlights the grace of God and which I think he would probably have every right to is, look, you backstabbing cowards. Go meet Jesus at this place, you fools, you faithless people. You who all rejected him. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you go, you men without conviction who stabbed me in the back. He doesn't say, you're not coming with me now. But I mean, you're excluded from the movement that I'm starting. You didn't believe in me. I told you so. And we see this especially with Peter. I think there's a reason why Jesus singles Peter out. Just imagine the women, they come back, they tell the disciples, hey guys, Jesus, Jesus is alive. The tomb's empty. He wants to meet you guys in Galilee. Go see him. Peter probably would have thought, all right, guys, uh, tell me how it goes. Let, let me know what Jesus says to you because Jesus cannot possibly want me. I denied him three times. I defended myself passionately that I would not deny him. Just go ahead, guys. This is a word to Peter that he is forgiven, that Jesus has more grace in him, that there is sin in Peter. Just see the grace, and I want, I want to see all my disciples, especially you, Peter. And we see in the life of Peter and what happens in this moment, what the grace of God does, how transformative it is. If you're unfamiliar with Peter or where Peter goes or who he leads or the influence he has, Peter becomes the leader of the church. Peter becomes one of the most influential men of the church. So what do we learn from Peter? The guy who was probably the biggest, screwed up one of the most, the guy who denied Jesus three times, who becomes the leader of the movement Jesus died to create. What do we learn from this? What do we learn about the grace of God? I think the one who understands their sins to the fullest, the one who realizes what they've done, their screw-ups, their failures, will have the most profound repentance. The one who understands their sin most deeply will experience the grace of God most deeply. The one who recognizes what they did, who is crushed by their pride, will hold on to God's grace the strongest. 
This is fundamentally different than the way religion works and the way the world works. Because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection changes everything. I think what it means for us is that, quote, strength is found in weakness. What it means for us, what the resurrection means is that we should constantly seek to identify sin, confess, repent to Jesus, and live lives of repentance. Now, if you're a religious person, seeing flaws in yourself and understanding your sin, your failure, repentance will most likely be avoided at all costs. Right? Because it would be devastating for a religious person to have sin exposed. It would be devastating because it'd show your weakness. Right? For religious people, they put their hope, their value, their, their identity, their worth in how good they are, what they've done, their strengths. In religion, an individual says, I'm saved because of my good works, my spiritual maturity, my own strength, by living up to some moral code, moral laws. But that is not how the gospel works at all. The gospel is fundamentally different. In the gospel, it says that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That salvation only comes when we admit that we can't do it. Salvation comes not from boasting in our strength and our goodness, but by admitting that without Christ, we're hopeless. Salvation only comes when we admit that we need him, that we're not strong enough, we're not good enough, we're not deserving enough for it. For the Christian, in the gospel, repentance doesn't crush us. Seeing our sins doesn't prove us to be weak, immature Christians who are not strong enough. It enables us to experience the power of God, the grace of God more deeply, and in so doing, we become more mature. I think the more you see your own flaws and sins and failures, the more you will see God's scandalous grace, you will experience his radical love for you, and it will make you both humble and confident, humble and bold, weak and strong. Does that make sense? I'm tempted a lot to to not live out of this and have the gospel kind of function for my identity, my, my repentance, and that I don't really like confessing my sins or repenting. I don't like telling Stephanie of all my weaknesses. I don't like telling Will and Nathan and Steve and Carrie about my weaknesses. And if there's a temptation in you and when someone asks how you're doing or you know there's something going on, your temptation is, I'm just going to say I'm good. I'm going to put on this great face. This, you're doing good, brother. Great week. Do we live lives of repentance? Do we think it's weak to confess weaknesses? I believe it takes a lot of strength to do that. Another practical implication of the gospel, of the resurrection of Jesus, how it changes everything, is it means that we can bank everything on God's word. Jesus' word is completely trustworthy. I love what the angel says in verse 7. Go to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Charles Spurgeon said this, Our Lord, remember his promises. It was before he died that he said he would go before them to Galilee, and now that he has risen from the dead, he says by the mouth of the angel, There you will see him, just as he said to you. The rule of Christ's action is his own word. What he has said, he will perform. You and I forget his promises, but he never does. Jesus' word is completely trustworthy. Practically, what I think this means is that this should be the thing we go to most often. This should be the thing that we start our days with. Right? If, we, if we start our days and we know that throughout our day, people are going to lie to us. Or people that we love are going to lie to us. Coworkers, the advertisement, the world is going to lie to us. This will make you happy. This will make you comfortable. This will bring you joy. This is what you need to find your security, and this will add to your value. We need the word of God, don't we? Every morning. Like, I want something that's going to be trustworthy, that I can bank on, that is true. 
practically what it means is that when Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, we trust him. We come to him. Again, there's not a footnote. There's not a little asterisk that says, except after you go to the recliner, you go to the television, you go to your, your spouse, you go to substances, only after you tried those things and they don't work, then come to me, I'll give you rest. We trust Jesus when he says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly in him. What about some other things? What else should it affect? Let's think about this this week. What does the resurrection mean? I can get up here, I think some of us could get up here and say, these kind of big theological truths, which are true and important that we understand, forgiveness of sins is offered to all. Jesus brought death to death. God and man can be reconciled because of the cross. That's what Jesus' resurrection does. But how do we get it into the, the day-to-day? What, what is Jesus' resurrection? How does that affect the way we live our lives year to year, month to month, day to day, minute to minute? What does it mean? And I think a question we have to ask ourselves as a church is, does it? Do we think that the resurrection has daily implications? Do we think the resurrection changes everything? We would ask this question. We would think about, could someone look at our life and come to the conclusion that, wow, Jesus really is real. The resurrection really happened. Jesus is really alive. In other words, could someone look at your life and it would demand a presentation of the gospel? Does the way that you live your life demand that Jesus lived, died, and rose again? He's better than everything and he changes everything. Or maybe does it demonstrate the reality that you seek to be a good person or that you're a nice person? But it's really because, you know, you, you grew up with nice parents, you lived in a nice, comfortable, middle-class house, you were privileged, you were a good person maybe because you had access to a private education, you were a good person because things have kind of worked out for you in your life. I think if we take... Jesus' life, death, and resurrection deeply, it's going to change everything about us, everything that we do. It's going to change the way that we spend our time. We're going to be radically reoriented to the good of the others, looking for ways to serve others, especially those who are unlike us. Especially we would serve those who others are not serving to highlight the difference of the gospel, to magnify Christ, to show that he is really alive, I think it would mean that we'd be sacrificially generous, generous people. Because the reality is that many people are generous, right? They don't, they don't have Jesus. Do we give until it hurts or do we sacrifice to be generous? Do we live below our means so that we can give? I was thinking about this. Um, just been con- convicted in my own life of how I, do- I don't do this, and I don't want to say that, you know, I'm, I'm saying all this because I've mastered it, and you guys are sinful pagans. Maybe some of you are, right? <laughs> But think about it, if you're, a, if you're an engineer at Boeing, if you're an engineer that works downtown, if you're a, whatever your profession is and you have a set salary, and you'd probably have similar salaries to your coworkers or thinking about my dad worked at Boeing and I, uh, a lot of his coworkers kind of were along the same path as him. They had the same amount of experience. They had similar salaries. They could have probably had similar houses if they worked hard, if they didn't blow too much of their money they didn't have too many divorces, if they didn't have medical conditions, if they saved, they could kind of, they kind of had a standard of living that could represent their job, whatever that is, if you're a doctor or engineer or 
a waitress. But what if, let's say your salary, let's throw out a number, let's say your salary is 100000 And instead of living like all the other people that make $100,000 a year, you live like those who have $50,000 a year. What if instead of affording the nice home in the nice neighborhood that you could afford, you lived in a, maybe a poor home in a, in a poor neighborhood? What if instead of living in the middle to upper class neighborhood, you lived in a poor neighborhood? What if instead of driving new cars, you drove older cars? Or what if instead of using your extra resources to throw, to spend on yourself, you use those to throw the best parties and to start nonprofits and to give to the poor and the abused and the disenfranchised? To me, that would demonstrate a life that demands something, right? Why do you do this? No one lives like this. I don't, I don't just want to be ragging on the rich, though the, the poor as well. If you would say that you're poor, are you thankful for your poverty? Like, God, thank you for not giving me riches that so easily ensnare me and lead me to trust in them instead of you. Do we have that mentality? I know I don't a lot. God, I wish I had ten more thousand dollars this year so that I could I could redo my kitchen. I could change my house from this dumpy little thing to make it look nice. If we're poor, are we thankful for what we have and not complaining and not always wishing man, I wish I had five more, ten more, fifteen more thousand dollars. That would make a big difference. I'd be way more happier if I had more money. point I'm trying to get across, guys, is that are people curious about Jesus based on how we live? Would people just be able to look at our life and say, oh, you're nice. You're good because you've had things go your way. You own a nice house. You have nicer cars. You have a couple toys to play with over the weekend. Parents and young families, what if instead of wanting a large family by giving birth to a lot of kids, we wanted to adopt? We wanted to have a large family of orphans that we could demonstrate and get the opportunity to show the grace of God to children without parents. We could, we could have opportunities to share about the gospel because people ask, hey, why, do you, why are you guys so passionate about adoption? Empty nesters, what if you use your extra space, your one or two rooms to house internationals or refugees to show the difference that the gospel makes and to get a chance to share the gospel with people that are living in your house? What is the best way that we can live our lives to demonstrate the reality that Jesus is real? And I can't say what the implications are for all of us because they're going to be different. But I think we should ask ourselves the question, how does buying this, how does spending my money this way, how does this relationship, how does this or that magnify, display the difference that Jesus makes? A couple weeks, well, was it just last week? I was in Colorado, and I was speaking to a, a church from Austin, Texas. They were having a, what they call a uh, second-half ministries, people who are 50 and older. They take this retreat, and the pastor brought me in to ask this, this question. And I thought it was kind of bold because this is a church that we're trying to develop a partnership with, and they could support us, and thought, okay, how is this going to go if I get this kind of bold with them? The pastor wanted me to say, okay, now that you guys have more time and resources than you've probably ever had in your whole life, are you going to invest them in yourself or in others? Are you going to live selflessly or selfishly? And you know, I'm thinking, okay, do you guys want to promise what you're giving to me before I speak, you know, or... <laughs> As I, was, as I was speaking and I was looking at things like this, money, idolatry, comforts, the question that he asked that I thought was profound and that I've been thinking about since then is he asked, we have to ask ourselves this question, why do I have everything that God has given me? Why do I have this house, this car, this amount in my bank account? Do we have the mentality, well, I worked hard for this, I earned this, I get to use it how I please? 
Or is it everything I own is by the grace of God? Everything I own is to glorify him, to magnify him. How do I best do that? I think it means we would do the the mundane, everyday things differently. The way we work, the way we eat, the way we sleep, the way we play. It would be different. We don't just go to work to get money and pay the bills. Right? That's why you go to work. Let me invite you to encourage how does the gospel transform the way you work? We don't just work to buy the things we want. We work to show the difference the gospel makes, to show Jesus. We work in response to it. We work for the glory of God. Why do we eat? How do we eat? I don't think we'd eat too much because we don't want to worship food, but I don't think we'd eat too little because we care about our bodies. There'd be a proper balance. We care about our bodies because... God does. This is what the reality of the resurrection shows us. God cares about the physical. We don't want to sleep too little or too much because we know ultimately our rest and comfort is in Jesus. We don't want to sleep too little because we want to rest because we know how to put work down. We know that we are not God. We know that our identity is not in our jobs or in accomplishments. They don't define us. Jesus does. You could say this for hobbies, uh, whatever you do, I think we need to be mindful of this question. Doesn't mean we don't have hobbies, we don't work, we don't sleep, we don't eat. But does ask how do I how do we do this in a way that grows our wonder and affection for God, and allows us to demonstrate and magnify the gospel? I think that'll fundamentally change the way that we live. Not getting away from more of the more religious mentality of well, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with a nice house? What's wrong with a nice couple rooms to spare that I can use how I want? What's wrong with having a new car? I think a much harder question to ask is, how does it show that Jesus is your treasure? How does it show that Jesus is your hope? How does it show that Jesus changes everything? And that's the question that I want to ask with you guys. I want to be a church that asks this question. How can we best live our lives to show the difference the gospel makes? Why? Because we love Jesus. Because we love Des Moines. We want people to come to know Jesus because of the way we live. Because they get questions. Why do you live like this? And we get to share the gospel with them. The only thing in their life that brings hope and joy and peace, the only thing that's going to transform them. The thing that we can bank on. Do, you, do we want this? This is, I mean, I know it's not a rhetorical question. Do we want this? Do we want Jesus to be magnified through our church? Do we want lost people to come to know Jesus through us? And I know it's, it's the Holy Spirit using the gospel being proclaimed. But Jesus says, let your life shine. Let your lights shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection change, changes everything. And I pray that we experience that more deeply and that it transforms us to go and be transformed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that you would send your spirit to comfort us. To open our eyes. Father, I pray that you would be with those who are hurting, who are struggling. Who are stumbling. 
pray that you would make us an honest community who is open about our sins and our flaws, who doesn't try to mask or pretend like everything in our life is hunky-dory, Father. There's, we're broken. We're hurting. Father, would you bring us alongside? Would you, would you show us those people in our life right now who are hurting, who are lost, who are broken, who need the hope of the gospel, who are waiting to hear about something better because surely this world isn't everything that there is. Father, I pray that as we learn from you, as we come back to the gospel every week, that it would secure us in you, that our joy may be found in you, that our peace may be found in you, that we might grow in our trust, that you love us, that you care for us, that we can come to you at any time, at any place, because we have access to you through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Father, I pray for Des Moines and for Kent and for Federal Way and for Burien, for Normandy Park. I pray for the church to be equipped, to be called, to be sent out, to be anointed, to preach the good news about Jesus Christ. To live lives that demonstrate the difference that the gospel makes in the way we relate to one another, in the way that we hobby and play and spend our money and gracious and patient. I pray that you would bring disciples alongside of us who want to do this in Des Moines, that you would send disciples out of the mountain church to start new churches, that lost people might come to know you, that the gospel might be multiplied and magnified through Des Moines to everywhere, Father. I thank you for the work that you are doing in in and through us, and I pray that you are continually lifted up, that you are held out as the best. That others might look at our church, our lives, and see that we love Jesus most deeply and that he is the best thing that you can ever experience. I ask now that uh, as, as a, a time of confession, of repentance, and a time of mourning over sin, but a time of celebration of what you've done. As we look at and experience your life, death, and resurrection through coming to the table, I thank you for the reminder that your supper, the Lord's Supper, communion is to us every week. And I pray that we would not become callous to your resurrection. We would not become callous to what you've done for us but that it would motivate us and transform us each week to be more like you. In your name I pray, amen.